at the end of the day, if it was his PTSD, that wasn't about me. Yes, I could have triggered it in some way, but ultimately the PTSD was his trauma and his suffering that he ultimately had to deal with. And the best thing that I could do is sit there and just be a support system for that. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. And mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. You can access thousands of therapists one click away. Go check out BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Get 10% off your first month. Start your wellness now. Welcome back to April 2021. We are deep diving and shattering the stigma and educating the world on the topic of borderline personality disorder. We are learning, we are evolving, we're creating hope, we're creating inspiration. We are showing that people can heal. There is a roadmap, there is a way. Brina came to me through our original episode about borderline personality disorder, episode number 11 with Paul Sokol. Brina is Paul Sokol's girlfriend. She was at one point engaged to him, maybe even a few times engaged him. We'll hear over this conversation. She stuck by his side. She really wanted to understand how they can together create love, create friendship, respect with all the limitations and struggles along the way. She is a passionate, determined, kind soul. Brina gives hope to the world of Borderline that she just sees the human behind the struggles and she really works with the tools that she's given to navigate the emotional roller coaster that Paul goes through, how she can put her own boundaries in place and still be respected and respect Paul. It's a fascinating fascinating conversation, how one can accept love and create a long-lasting business relationship and a love relationship and human relationship with someone that is diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. You do not want to miss this episode. It is powerful. It is inspiring. It is loving. You will love Brina. Enjoy this episode. Paul and I, we met while working for Infusionsoft, which is now Keep. So he was over in product land while I was over in customer support. We actually met on a dating app and then he realized that we had 17 mutual friends. And so we ended up meeting up for drinks one night and found out we had a lot in common. And then the relationship took off from there. So that's the short version of how we met. So wait, so you met at Keep at Infusionsoft. Yes. But you didn't really have anything to do with each other until the dating app. Correct. Yeah. So I knew who he was, but he had no idea who I was. Oh, what were you doing at Infusionsoft? I was in the advanced support department. So I was over in customer support, dealing with all the complaints and angry customers and technical issues. He was over in product creating them. Oh, okay. When he found out that you were working for Infusionsoft, what happened then? <laughs> he got really ecstatic because he was Mr. Infusionsoft. He was known as Mr. Infusionsoft. Everybody looked to him. And so when he realized that we worked together and we had also met on this dating app, he got really excited because, oh, here it is, someone that's like me that understands the software and we can speak the same language. And so I was a little skeptical just because he had a reputation for being a little abrasive. 
Did you know about that? Yes, I very much did. You mean strong-minded, passionate, opinionated Paul? All of it. Yes. All of the Paul that we all know and love. Yeah. And I actually, when we met up for that first night, I had the rule, all right, I'm going to just come in for two drinks and then pretend I have to go. I wanted to show up because he knew we worked together, didn't want to cause a thing at work. It just ended up working out that we sat there. We actually closed the place down. So we were at a restaurant. We ended up closing the place down because we just talked all night. And was it all about Infusionsoft? No, this, it was everything. It was all over the map, where we wanted to travel, what we wanted to do. And so his personality, which is something that is very common with people with borderline personality disorder, is that they are very magnetic. They are very attractive. They are very exciting and charming. Yes. Oh, really? Is that like common thing that we see? Yes. In doing research after, because he didn't get diagnosed for probably another two years after that, but in doing all the research and everything around it, it just, it, Turns out that they are very charismatic people. They're, again, very charming. They just want to be loved. And so they do anything they can to be loved, which is be helpful, be funny, be a shoulder to cry on. And so that was what he was for me that night. And we ended up spending, we actually ended up getting in a car accident together the very next day. Yeah, we were on our way to go out to an actual first date and we ended up getting sideswiped on his side. All was fine. We were all good, but I drove him around for three months and it just, the relationship just blossomed from there. And how did he react when that car accident happened? What was his reaction? Oh my gosh, Mr. Chill. You would think, yes. You would think that doesn't happen to you, Chill. He was like, oh, this sucks. And then he just called his insurance and took care of it. And the police showed up. And Oh, really? Yeah. He was totally Mr. Chill. Wow. So you're dating for a few months and there's no hiccup yet. Everything. And you're like, wait, this is not the Paul that I hear about in Infusionsoft. Like, where's the Paul that I hear about in Infusionsoft? That passionate, uptight, and sometimes aggressive. I would say like sometimes people call him aggressive and you're like, wait, why am I not seeing that? Did you bring it up in conversation? Yeah, we definitely had a lot of conversation around how he was viewed. And I shared with him that the first interaction I ever had with him was back in 2014, before we even had this dating thing going on. And it was a very nice email exchange. He helped me out a lot. And then when by around the time we started dating, I started learning more about him. And yeah, I just told him, you have a tendency to come across as a jerk. Like you just, you want what you want, what you want, and you go after it. And it tends to rub people the wrong way sometimes. And so he was like, yeah, I don't care. I've Everybody has their listening of everybody else and they can think what they want. And so just in getting to know him, though, I actually saw how caring he was, how caring and compassionate. And that's what led to the just exactly what you said, that passion, that almost aggressiveness sometimes, because he was so passionate about what he does and about helping people that he gets a little aggressive with it sometimes. And so I started overlooking that. And the first real issue that we had was actually when we ended up traveling out of town for the first time together. So our first big vacation, we end up going to Charlotte for his best friend's birthday party, I believe it was. And one of the things that started becoming a problem was alcohol. And so he was drinking pretty heavily that night. We were doing a bar crawl. Towards the end of the night, we're in this club and he's we're dancing and stuff. And all of a sudden he just starts cursing at everybody around us what is going on? He's picking fights with everybody. And so I run up to his friend and I'm like, ah, you've known him longer than I have. We've been together six months. And so his friend's just, you know what, just take him back to the hotel room and let him go sleep it off. 
So we start walking back and just he's trying everything he can to put us in like the most precarious situations. He's wanting to go fight homeless people and he's wanting to walk through a graveyard. And it's just, I know this was alcohol and do so you know what? No big deal. We get him back to the hotel room and that's when this switch just flipped and he starts calling me by his ex's name and is yelling at me and is throwing pillows at me and is threatening me with bodily harm. And we're in an Airbnb. Were you scared? Not really, because it was something that I know this is alcohol induced. I know that he's inebriated now. It's just something that we just got to get him calmed down and sleeping. And that's exactly what happened. We got him calmed down, calm sleeping. And when he woke up the next morning, he had no recollection of what happened. And I say, you don't remember this. You don't remember trying to fight a homeless guy. You don't remember trying to like calling me by your ex's name. And he was like, no, didn't remember all of that. So we talked it out and we ended up working through it. And it basically came down to, we can't have you having any more of those explosive out of control drinking sessions. So that was it. And then like more and more things started happening. So six months after, so about a full year into our relationship, we were actually at a business conference and pretty much the same exact thing occurred. He got really intoxicated. He came back up to the hotel room and he started getting aggressive and violent and couldn't figure out why. Basically, all of that was there was a couple of those major kind of incidents where he would just get and it was always usually around alcohol. And so whenever I started keeping track of his patterns, what triggered him? Was it a lack of sleep? Was it because he was getting inebriated in some way? And yeah, it just basically all came down to it was the alcohol. So basically, you still don't know about borderline. You're thinking maybe bipolar because he was diagnosed with bipolar. So you thought maybe it was bipolar, right? Yeah. So at this point, we actually didn't know what it was. So at this point, I hadn't even heard of anything about bipolar. The only thing that we had come to a conclusion is that it was post-traumatic stress disorder from his previous relationship. So the ex that he was calling me names, they had a very volatile breakup as well, where she just basically abandoned the house, which is huge for borderlines, is like that abandonment. And she just up and left the house and that gave him all this PTSD and then, or gave him PTSD from that. And so I felt it was just, it was just these PTSD episodes. And so he- Why were you so forgiving? Because I could see past, I could see that it was something he was dealing with. What do you have in your vision that most people don't have? Because I want to understand that. It's not self-neglect of yourself. It wasn't from not owning what you deserve. It was from saying, I deserve better treatment than this, but it's not about me. It's his PTSD. It's his struggles. How did you not personalize it? Because at the end of the day, if it was his PTSD, that wasn't about me. Yes, I could have triggered it in some way, but ultimately... The PTSD was his trauma and his suffering that he ultimately had to deal with. And the best thing that I could do is sit there and just be a support system for that. How did you let that? But how do you give that compassion? How do you ignite compassion and empathy when you're you're in the boxing ring with him and you're like taking all the beating, which you don't deserve? How does your intellectual mind speak to your emotional reaction? Yeah, in the moment, it's definitely, especially when it's those, the volatility is coming at me. It's something that I I have to put it aside and say, at least in this moment, my my feelings don't matter. Because I look at him as he's struggling and he's suffering with something more than I am right now, because I'm at least clear-minded and clear-headed and I'm not being triggered by some past trauma that I haven't dealt with. I take that as a blessing and I say, if I'm, since I'm in this mind, let me go help him. Did you know that his mind was a little bit broken at the time? Did you have that awareness? Only what I knew from his previous relationship, nothing about the level, the depth of trauma or like how deep the trauma went. 
it was definitely something that was really hard to figure out what was going on because it was like there was plenty of things that we it wasn't just a depressive episode was it he was manic was it he was bipolar there were so many what ifs and it was really hard because we were going to therapy so he and I were both going to therapy together as well as individually and his therapist wasn't really giving us much either however his therapist also wasn't like set up to handle personality disorders yeah so that was and that would be one thing that I say is if anybody's dealing with this never go to the same therapist as the one your partner is going to. Because I, the two therapists that I have been to have actually also both treated Paul. And so they have this bias going into my treatment based on how they treated him. So that was definitely one thing that probably was a big no, that we probably should have switched up early on. But as far as just giving myself compassion, it's really giving myself compassion and giving myself the space to be like, who do I want to be in this moment? I want to be the kind of person that is yelling and screaming back at him. And it's also, what is he asking from me right now? What does he need from me without even saying he needs it? One of the things that I did that really helped me was starting to think of Paul as a child. When you start to understand the BPD in general, you start to see that it's based on usually childhood traumas. And so when you can put yourself into the the kind of shoes of a child and say, okay, they're acting out as if a child would, what would a child be trying to tell me here? That they can't use their words to express. So they're using emotions to express instead. Usually when you spin it around like that, you can get to the heart of what is he trying to say? What is he upset about? And sometimes it's just clearly there's just too much going on and they're overwhelmed. And at that point, it's, you just got to get them to, you know, calm down, cool down, and then move forward. So I want to ask you on that topic, because I think it's so crucial to any relationship, but here it's, it comes out more often because you're faced on, because it just comes at you without you even expecting it more often, because that's the personality, that's the disorder. And they're not, it's not like they can control it especially when they don't know, maybe further down the line when they have the tools and they're aware and they can self-regulate. But it's when they don't know what's going on, definitely they don't have the awareness. So they say in a relationship, besides an unconditional love of a parent to a child, besides that, it's always based on previous and future desires of the give and take. So you have to have really a bucket of gold nuggets to say, okay, I'm going to cash in one of these chips for this, what episode that's happening now. I'm, I need to have a lot of the past positive experiences in order to let me slide through this negative one that's feeling really uncalled for. I don't deserve it. It's not about me, but yet I'm getting the beating here. How do you replenish that? And when do you know, okay, fine, this relationship is healthy, even though it's going through this hiccup. And how do you do that? Like the scanning, because it's not an unconditional love. It's not, let's face it. It's not. Yeah. And there have been moments. And that's the one thing is that I've been saying a lot is give yourself grace is just give yourself grace because not every moment am I going to feel madly in love with him. Not every moment am I going to have the most compassion for him. And not every moment am I going to keep my temper and my cool with him. And not every moment do you want to be the Messiah that's coming and saving him. Exactly. And the only Messiah because no one else is willing to take the beating. Exactly. And I'm not saying the physical, the emotional. No. And you're totally right there though, because that's something that actually in uh, probably the previous two jobs. So we've, not only are we working together, we also held two jobs previous to this. And with both of those, I ended up being his translator within the company because 
he would have some kind of interaction with a coworker of ours that wouldn't go so well. And then he would walk explosive. Exactly. And then, so I would have to come in and be like, here's what he actually meant to say. And I'd have to start translating for him and taking care of him. And then if he, yeah, it would just, it would turn into this whole thing. You were the cleaning lady. You were cleaning up the messes constantly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's tiring. Super tiring, super tiring. Yeah. Especially because like when you start to work from home and then you're also at home, it's like, how do you get that space? And I would say, let's see, he was diagnosed in like April of 2018. And by that time, we had actually already been engaged for three months. So we had actually been engaged. Wait, so how long were you dating for? Three and a half, four years at that time. Wow. Wow. That's long. So you're dating for almost four something years, let's say four years, and you're really giving of yourself. Yeah. I'm just very giving. I I saw him. He's the one, he's the one that changed my life. He's already given me so much. He's empowered me in so many ways that I'm like, how like this man has been so loyal to me. What, like, why don't I give this loyalty back? And so we start planning for the wedding and we start putting things together. And at that time, our business wasn't doing too well. So we ended up helping on board with somebody else. And during that time though, we ended up weird stuff. February 14th of 2019 and we get fired both of us same day same time same company and so we're now we're engaged at this time yeah and this was after he found out about him having borderline and so that was probably the time that I just was like you know what listen like I'm not doing this anymore we're not gonna no engagement let's take it a step back because clearly there's still some stuff that you have to work on and that ended up man we ended up being going on and off with the engagement about four times until finally it was listen there's a lot that needs to be worked on you're engaged was that a trigger for him because of abandonment because the one of the biggest triggers for an outburst in borderline is abandonment issues and breaking up an engagement is clearly, oh, she might leave me. She might not want me the way I am. She might not marry me. I might lose Brina. Mm-hmm. That absolutely is. And that's, yeah, and that's a really good point is that anytime a perceived abandonment, it doesn't have to be actual abandonment. It could just be like, you're getting up to walk to the next room and they're, wait, where are you going? And so in this case, yeah, because that was actually, now that I think about it, that was actually the, the second time that I had told him, listen, we need to put this engagement on pause because the first time is what sparked him getting diagnosed. Because I, really what it was, what it came down to is I was trying to, sh- three months after we had gotten proposed or we had gotten engaged, I had tried to share with him just some things that I wasn't you know, happy about how the proposal went. And he took that to mean so many different things. And the BPD part of his brain just jumped to so many different conclusions. And it ended up leading to me having to take him to the police station where the suicide hotline was called and then they brought out the paramedics and then Paul got admitted to the psych ward. And then from there, that kind of started everything into all of his therapy session with all the therapists to find out that he has BPD. So when you got engaged the first time, you didn't even know that he had borderline. Yeah, I didn't even know. Do you think that it could be that it was a trigger? You're breaking up with him could because they always say there's like a big trigger that brings up the aha moment and then they go, they it's usually some kind of either a severe depression or some big breakdown that they go through, probably treated in the hospital. And they're like, okay, you have borderline. Did you ever feel that your breaking up with him triggered it? Was there any of that fear or that guilt? No guilt. If anything, it was one of those, it was something that I looked at as a 
it was a necessity is it was a necessary evil is that it was bound to happen at some time. And it was, I'm actually thankful that it happened with me because you were the most compassionate and understanding. Yeah. I myself didn't come from the best upbringing. I was emotionally and mentally abused when I was growing up. And I was like, I had that compassion to be able to give it back to somebody who he gets diagnosed and I, I do what I do best and research. So I just go full blown research mode for three weeks straight and learn everything I can about it and buy every book I can. While he's in therapy, I'm sitting here learning about it. That was probably one of the biggest things that really helped the relationship is just understanding what was over there with him than what I could also do to control maybe the reactions. I will never take responsibility for his emotions. Because ultimately, whatever he is feeling, that is, he is responsible for feeling that way. Because I can't just flip on the happiness switch. I can't just flip on a jealousy switch. He's ultimately responsible for it. However, there is some responsibility on my end as far as what I do during those times. One of the things that I've learned to do is that if either of us are tired, never try and have one of those difficult conversations. Always wait until either, hey, honey, tomorrow after our dog walk, can I have five minutes with you to talk about this? That's a big thing is because if he's tired, no telling what's going to happen. Same thing with myself too. So let me just try to understand this. You can be a trigger because I know the word trigger is very common in borderline personality disorder. Okay. He can diagnose you as the trigger, but you're not willing to accept the fact that you're not taking accountability for the trigger. He was triggered by you, but you're, but you can't be faulted for it. Right. Yeah. It's if I like the color blue and you give me pink flowers, I can't get mad at you because you didn't give me blue flowers. But what if I told you a hundred times that I hate pink flowers. Then you have some account, you have some responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) But what if it's really Ari really wanting to buy pink flowers and he doesn't remember, or he didn't think about it, or those pink flowers looked so beautiful for him and he wanted to give me those pink flowers, but I only like white flowers. So am I supposed to say he doesn't love me because he gave me pink flowers? Whose responsibility is it here? Yeah. And in that case, that's where it's okay. Let's talk it out. And so if I start to identify that certain conversations, like in this case, I think a big one would be with Paul's act. It's very well known that their breakup was pretty bad. And so I just avoid the topic. And if he really needs to talk about it, then one of the things that I do is I'll sit back and I let him have his say and I put zero input into it. I don't give him any of my judgments because that's knowing that topic is a trigger for him. I'm not going to feed into to a trigger he has. And so that's where it would be my responsibility to come in and say that maybe it's, yes, I know you like white flowers. However, you had a really bad reaction to these white flowers last time. So here, instead, I got you the only ones I have left, which is pink. That might be... Oh, that's nice. So that's where it's, you have to really consider where are they coming from? What message are they trying to get across? Because a lot of times the message and tone don't match. There's been a lot of times where as Paul is into heavy metal, and so he'll get really excited and he'll just let out this like shriek, this like black metal shriek. And it it always throws me off and I'm what's going on. And he's just, oh, I'm so sorry. I just got excited. And he was like, was that a little too much? And yeah, just a little. So we've had to communicate when, when his level of emotion doesn't really match the appropriateness for the, just the situation. Right. How do you not get exhausted with constantly? Cause he mentioned in the podcast, when I interviewed him, that you both read Stop Walking on Eggshells. And one of the things that people feel like when they live with someone with borderline, that they're constantly trying to avoid triggering them or to cause them pain or to cause any outburst that is 
that is just exhausting to go through with them. And how do you not get exhausted? I'm not even going to pretend that I don't. I It is very tiring. It is very draining. And especially for someone like Paul, who is also just incredibly brilliant. He's so he's smart and he's energetic. And then he's also got BPD. It gets exhausting having to play the constant trying to stay away from I'm not the bad guy. And that's something right there that one thing is if I am feeling exhausted, I will tell him not today. I just, today is one of those days that I just can't. So let me, help me out here. If you need a hug, please let me know you need something. If you need some kind of affection, I'll come up and give you a hug. But past that, like I am mentally not here. And he's done pretty good to respect that boundary. But I would say that's probably the, and that probably leads into that's the first one is like setting boundaries, figuring out, And I would say not even what your limit is, but figuring out what you need to have in place in your life to feel, to feel in charge and to feel accomplished and achieved and stuff like that. And so for me, it was really getting on my own schedule, which meant that therefore a little bit, I had to, we had to go to the gym at separate times instead of always going to the gym together and always having the same schedule. I started distancing myself a little bit to say, and very straight told him these two hours every single night are my time. Like you cannot intercede on this time. But how does that not trigger abandonment right there? By letting him know, because I actually let him know what I'm doing, where I'm at, what time I'll be back. That right there, it's like with a kid. It's literally a kid. I was just thinking, oh my God, it's like my children. Mommy, where are you going? How long are you going to be? When are you coming back? What's going to happen when you come back? What can I expect from you when you come back? That is exactly it. That's exhausting. It is. And as a mother, it's unconditional love. I decided to bring this kid to the world. They were my responsibility. Yes, I have to set boundaries. I have to care for myself, but I can't say to them, sorry, you're no longer my child. Cella V, I'm out. But with a partner that I'm choosing, I can say, you know what? This is really tiring for me. So what do you do? Because I know that you love him to the moon and back. And I know that he feels something in you that feels whole. What is that, that he feels in you that you take the chips out when you need to borrow chips when you're depleted? Because that's what it is. And every relationship, it's like this. Let's put it clear. There is no relationship that there's no ups and downs and chips. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Just with when we're with borderline, you're more the one that's constantly repairing and understanding and then the kind one and the avoiding one. You're always on the lookout. Literally, like walking on eggshells. Yeah, it's very much like that. Yeah, it's very much you're constantly the one on the lookout for war. You're you're constantly scouting out to see where the traps are. You even have to constantly look out for the little switches in their perspective of going from the good guy to the bad guy. And even there's something called a favorite person, which I'm not sure if, if a lot of people with BPD have identified this, but the favorite person is basically the person that the borderline will look to in order to say, how should I feel today? So I have to almost make sure that my emotions and feelings are like level and Zen almost all the time. It's a lot. And so as- so he's mirroring you. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm having a bad day, he's going to have a bad day. And so as far as like how, what he feels in me is there's, he really is a partner for me. He's been there for me as far as getting me out of my own shell to be able to do something like this, because there was a time where I was so introverted that doing something like this would have given me crippling, just crippling anxiety. You mean this podcast recording? Oh, yes. Oh, and you're so chilled. You're like, oh, this is where I belong. I know. And it's something that he's done that for me. 
like he's been the one to really to show me that I can dream bigger and actually have bigger in my life. And so between giving me the opportunity to run my own business and then giving me the opportunity to really be seen as an expert in something, he's really done that for me. And so there's just so much love that I have for this man. And like also just the world of good that he can do for people. It's there. I'd be stupid not to support him, not to support him and helping him better himself to have a better world. And as far as when I get exhausted, I take a look at myself and kind of one thing you said is like every relationship has these struggles. It just, and and there's one thing where it's that everybody has struggles. It's the struggle that you choose. So what is the struggle that you're going to choose? And so in this case, it's just, if that struggle means that, yeah, I might have to sit here and, and treat him like an eight-year-old child and tell him what time to go to bed and all this other stuff. I'll take that in basically and swap it for the actual love. And like I said, the support and the fun that I get to have just through the conversation. Is he a lot of fun? Oh, yes. Tell me about the fun. I want to hear about the fun. Oh, man. So this guy is... So I come up with these harebrained schemes. Like I just, oh, wouldn't it be funny if... And then he's like, all right, let's do it. And he's on it. And he's just so smart that anything you want to do, he'll figure out how to do it. He has this crazy way of being able to take everything and turn it into some kind of scientific guessing game. And just everything is a giant, it's just a giant game. It's like when you're trying to, watching a child learn. That's probably one of my favorite things to do is when they're usually between like the ages of three and six. And they're in that mode where everything is just hands-on and they want to touch and they want to feel. And like, he still has that. He still has that childlike wonder. And it's just so much fun to go to a zoo or go to the, the science museum or something like that with him. Because you're just, you're always learning. Wow. And do you feel that by him owning the fact and accepting and not living in the fear, he doesn't care to share with people that he have borderline. He's very open about it. He's out there, which many people are not. And rightfully so, because they get judgment and they get treated differently and they get shamed. Even in therapists, one of the things that we speak a lot about on this podcast is even therapists treat you differently. When you go to the hospital, you're treated differently. Psychiatrists treat you differently. You just get treated differently and you're not given the chance that every other human is given and you're robbed from chances. It's just not fair. So by him owning it and talking about it, does it give him more accountability in a way and showing up differently? I would say, yeah, but it's probably because it is something that people can, I don't want to say call him on it, but if it is something that he's maybe getting a little too aggressive, somebody can be like, Hey man, are you okay? And then that does remind him that, Oh, Hey, especially in the infusion softer keep community, he's been very vocal about what he's going through there. And so people who interact with him can know that, Hey, if he's having a bad day and I approach him, I can still approach him. It's not an end all be all. And so I know that's one of the reasons why he's talked about it more. But if I, as far as like having more accountability, honestly, that'd probably be a better question for him. But I will say that it is something that he used to go through this, this period where he was, man, I'm such a failure. I'm such a loser. I have BPD. It makes me different. It makes me bad, horrible, all this stuff. And then, and he wouldn't want to go get tested or he wouldn't want to go into therapy for it or whatever the case was. And I remember always having to have the conversation with him of, look, if you don't feel good, are you going to sit there and just continue to suffer and not feel good? Or are you going to not feel good and actually go do something about it? Because like you can either choose to be powerful in this situation and let the BPD become your identity, or you can just make the BPD a part of your identity. And so what I really saw that I haven't seen with many BPDs before is that he really chooses to own it. He chooses the symptoms, he chooses what it does for him, and he chooses all of it. 
And so ever since then, yeah, he started choosing it. He started telling people about it. He started educating. I haven't really seen too many people that that treat him differently, but I will say they, they have different conversations too. Like they're more willing to talk about it, which I think is super helpful, especially with how volatile people with BPD have been known to be. And I've seen just such a complete opposite from those in my life. Cause I do have a couple of friends who also have BPD. And if you look past Whatever people say about them, they're dramatic, they're explosive, they're this, they're that. If you look past the emotion and look at the person, you can see just these beautiful individuals who have so much to give and they're just wanting to be noticed. And yeah, so I say that people with BPD are probably some of like just the coolest people I've ever met. And their highs and the lows can prove that because when they're high, they're so high and fun. But when they're hard on themselves and they mess up, and usually when they mess up with somebody that they love, they really feel zero. They're like, it's not, we don't add to this world. So let's just end the world's misery and our misery. And that's when they go into the suicidal thoughts and attempts and what are that and self-harm and all those negative patterns that it's as if they're self-correcting what they did wrong, but they're really saying, I feel so bad. Why couldn't I control myself? Yeah, they actually feel super, super bad. And and that's what I'm saying. That was what I was saying too, is like, it's up to them to, as much as we may want to go and correct it and say, no, it's okay, it's okay. That's another thing I've had to learn with Paul is that, no, you actually have to allow him to feel. Because if you don't allow him to feel the fact that he hurt another person, then it doesn't give him any, it doesn't give him that opportunity to teach himself that, hey, listen, this wasn't appropriate. I shouldn't do this again. So that way, if he ever comes up to me and he says, hey, I'm sorry, I don't know if you know of the hearts and flowers cycle in domestic violence. It's where you, everything's good. And then there's a buildup and then there's a blow up. And then there's the hearts and flowers where... But isn't that in every relationship? It's probably in every relationship, yes. Even I'm thinking with my children, it's even a cycle like that. And especially with my husband also, of course, there's no domestic violence, but I'm saying in a, we call it the connect and disconnect, the constant connect and disconnect. And we go in this cycle. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. It's like you have a moment of where you're just connected, you're in sync, everything's going good. And then you start to get a little less mindful about those things. And then all of a sudden just something happens. He didn't put the shoes in the right spot. And next thing you know, it's you haven't been feeling connected, but instead of just saying that, we start complaining about the shoes. And everything else that was accumulating in the last 5, 10, 20 days, whatever it is. And then we bring up all the history of hurts and pains, but the really, what's the pain you didn't, I felt unnoticed. I felt unconnected. I felt disconnected. And then it goes into the conversation with which leads to hearts and flowers. Yes. Yeah. Which is like, here, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then you have that moment of connection again. And the regret that teaches us how to hopefully show up differently next time. Yeah, that's something as you're talking a lot about feeling here. And that's something that we have that Paul and I have chosen to really identify is what are we feeling? And I don't know if you have seen an emotion wheel. We have it with smileys. I would say 30 different feelings, angry, shame, and it's like the emojis of different and you choose where you are. I do that with my children sometimes. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I Paul and I have actually gotten into this habit, especially if there's times where I'm feeling overwhelmed and I'm, I can't, I'm so, there's so many things going on. I can't express it. Or if he's a similar thing. And so we pull out this emotion wheel and we just go through it and see what are we feeling? And it turns out it works really well for Paul as a borderline because borderlines don't always understand 
the emotion that they're feeling. So they might be feeling excited, but then they go punch a wall. And you're like, why did you just respond in an aggressive way if you're excited? And it's because I just felt this surge of emotion. And so I just felt like going and punching a wall. And it's that wasn't really appropriate for what you were feeling. So let's take you back to what you were feeling. And yeah, a lot of times it's it can be that they're feeling sad and that they react in like by laughing or that, like I said, that they feel angry and they end up crying like they're sad. The emotions just don't line up with what the response is. So emotion wheels are super, super helpful to just be like, okay, what are we feeling? Are we feeling guilty? Are we taking this out on you? Or is it just something that like, I'm over here feeling sad because of X, Y, Z and you're picking up on it. So we've had to learn to do a lot of kind of that stuff too. I'm listening to you and I'm like, wow, she really has the role of a therapist, but in a romantic (laughs) relationship. Yeah, I laugh and it's because it is completely true. Like I've had to take a step back and look at everything that I've done. I'm like, man, I could probably give a therapist a run for their money. I could probably give a life coach a run for their money. (laughs) Like, Yeah, because you're living it all the time, not just that 45 minutes a week that you get to ask analyze it and walk away, you actually interact with it and live by the reactions that you're going to have in these conversations. Yeah. And that's something that it's like, you can't anticipate the reactions because the more that you anticipate that, oh, oh, I think he's getting upset here. The more that I will actually cause that to happen because I start responding to him as if he is anxious and snappy. And then therefore that makes him anxious and snappy. And so that's what I'm saying is I really have to take a look at like, how do I want to show up in the world? Because if I'm getting an anxious, snappy reaction, does that mean that maybe I'm anticipating something? Maybe I'm having a bad day. There's just so many different things that it really makes you take a look at like how it makes me take a look at how just how I'm showing up for other people. And that's all that that Paul's done. And having BPD and being around someone, it's it really makes you take a look at and get uh just get real on the court with how you are being. Is there any ever a time that you said If I was in a relationship with someone that doesn't have borderline, I would really react this way. But because he has borderline, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to trigger him. Is there something that you don't give yourself or respond or that you would have with your, I don't know if you have sibling, brother, sister, mother, father, friend, or previous relationships? Were you in previous relationships? Did you? Okay. Or previous relationships. Oh, if I was in this other relationship, I would be able to respond this way. But with Paul, I can't. Yeah. There's a lot of, I used to to just say not really whatever was on my mind, but however I was feeling in a moment, I would have no problem telling you, hey, you just really hurt my feelings there. I used to before have no problem telling people if they said, did something that offended me. But in this relationship, it is a little different because like I was saying, if it's something that, oh, he's about to run out to the door or run out the door because he has something going on, do I really want to bring up this thing that might cause an argument? So I do have to be a little bit more mindful of what I say, how I say it, and even just plain. And so we have to indicate to each other sometimes that, hey, I was just joking around there. So instead of saying just kidding, we say moo. So we moo at each other like a cow. (laughs) Just because it just gives that indication that, hey, I'm just joking here. I was not, because I have a tendency to give a very dry delivery. I'm very sarcastic. I'm very dry. And so when my sense of humor comes up, a lot of times people have to look at me and they're like, wait, were you joking around there? And so for the normal person, when I say normal, but for somebody without BPD that's able to read those emotions and understand them, they can pick up on my sarcasm a little bit. But there have been a couple of times where that's one of the things I have to take responsibility for is making sure that I'm not just constantly coming at him with the dry humor, just always sarcastic because it just, it doesn't really help the conversation. It doesn't help communication. It's me just trying to fill a space that's there. And yeah, so it's been fun with, 
learning new communication styles to make this work. Do you always do it in therapy with someone helping you or you do it on your own? Figuring out the codes and the new like adjustments. I call it the constant adjustment. I do like that. A lot of it has been figuring it out on my own. Just through reading, Reddit has actually been a huge help because one of the things that you've been you've mentioned at the beginning of this podcast was that there's not a lot of people without BPD that choose to live with somebody with BPD. And so when I was doing this research, it turns out that with most mental health illnesses, it's something like for the person with a mental health thing going on that they typically impact three people in their lives. And so for Paul having BPD, it was like he was impacting me, his mom, and his dad. I think we're the three people that we kind of identified. But it was just something in that I couldn't find anybody else though that was like really having to deal with this day in, day out. Like all the stories that I did hear about oh, I married this guy who he has BPD and now we've been married 40 years, but my marriage is horrible. And I don't see it as they have BPD and the only sentence for them is to have a horrible marriage. I don't believe that's true. So I've been digging everywhere I can to find other people who have been in my situation. And it's almost impossible to just, it's almost impossible to yeah find somebody just to advocate for this that does not have it because a lot of times they just, they're crazy. And that's all they say about the person with BPD. And it's, that's so tragic. So do you believe that it could be a long-term relationship, like a loving, even marriage children, that one is struggling with borderline and the other one adjusts and still feels whole and within the relationship and not the doormat or the one that keeps on getting the abuse and the neglect? I absolutely do. And it's something that it definitely takes a strong individual who's willing to take that on, knowing that not every story is going to be a success story with someone with BPD. However, I do see that with the right man, just the right kind of combination of therapy and just communication and just practice of just having that conversation. I definitely think that two people can have a long loving relationship with one another. And I don't think that it's, it's a death sentence for the love that these people can feel because it's just so tragic to see that people have been written off because they have BPD. They've been written off by society because oh now they can't work, yeah, which means you can't have a family, which means you're not allowed to have X, Y, and Z. And I just don't believe in that. I believe that it's, and then a lot of times these people, they I see them and they get into this mindset of I am unlovable because I can't control my emotions. And it's, that's not true at all. That's not true. It just takes people being understanding. So really my biggest thing is I would love to see it for that borderline personality disorder is more talked about and that it's more talked about by the people who maybe don't understand it fully because they can still ask questions. Just because you don't understand it fully doesn't mean you can't ask questions and get to understand it or get to understand the people that have it. And that's what I've really been pushing for lately with all of this. Amazing. Do you also believe that people with borderline can reach recovery? Yeah, absolutely. I do think that it would take the right combination of therapy and then also external support system. However, I fully believe that yes, anybody with borderline personality disorder can live a as normal of a life as they want to. Do you want to marry him? You don't have to answer. You don't have to answer. <laughs> yeah, that's still on the table. So you're not engaged now? No, we haven't been engaged for probably, I think it's over six months at this point. Yeah, we've been taking his recovery very slowly. Is there milestones that you could say, if we hit this milestone in our relationship, 
we will both feel safe. For him is also safety because if you leave the relationship, he feels abandonment and neglect and he can have a relapse on that. So we both feel safe in this relationship. Is there some milestones that you put in the way or checking in? Like where are we holding in recovery? Where are we holding with our work? Yeah, the work stuff definitely has check-ins like weekly, typical business. But as far as like where he and I are at personally, it is something that we usually check in about once every six months just to say where we at. Because right now, the relationship has been working without the added complexity of marriage on the table. And so we were like, okay, if if that ever changes, like we need to have a serious conversation, but it's like for right now it's working. So why add marriage back onto the table? We are, we have discussed kids. We have discussed getting a house together. And so we've also talked that, Hey, if that stuff like seriously starts coming to where we need to make a move on it, then we would have to talk more seriously about marriage. So it's all centered around though, not just his recovery, because he's doing great. Like he actually finally found a therapist that seems to really understand what he's going through and the best recovery for him. And so now it's my turn because like, I will say that anybody who has lived with somebody with BPD for any extended period of time, you should probably have some kind of therapy support system because there is traumas that I've dealt with that I have to now go through therapy just to recover from those. But then there's also milestones of setting the boundaries with him. What things, like how much time a week do I get to myself? What are my sacred times? Like you can't, bath time is my time at night or something like that. So yeah, we haven't really set milestones in place, but there, I would say that we've at least started paving the path mm-hmm. to what that relationship is going to look like. Does he do B- DBT? He does. Yes. Or he did. Does, did he do the private or the group or both? He did the group. So he did the group DBT twice, and now he's working on lens. You mean two cycles? Yes, two cycles of it. Okay. Was it helpful? I would say, yeah, it was a little helpful. However, the thing, one of the things this is unique to Paul is he only gets really shallow surface level with some stuff. So like when it was talking about certain communication skills, he would stop if it was a four series tool he would stop at like the second step and say, okay, yeah, no, I understand it. And I'm like, yeah, but there's these last two steps that like are critical to communication. He actually still has his book that if he's ever going through a breakdown, he'll pull it out and he'll see what skill he needs to focus on using. But I know he's been, but like I said, the lens treatment has been probably one of the most helpful. And just- What is that? From my understanding, because he's told me about it, they take actual little nodes and they stick it all over his head. And then they, they slowly electrocute or turn on the electrocution in each of the nodes. And then it just lights up his brain and it gives his brain different, like activates it as to help with the the sensitivity. Because when we feel emotions, it can also be the same thing as if we were like being shocked or you can trigger it in other ways, basically. So if you were getting to get angry, we could probably trigger those same uh, physiological symptoms by giving you a flush face or having your heart rate go faster. So we could induce the physical symptoms that emotions that they leave behind. But that's what the lens therapy does is it induces those feelings and then it just gets them to desensitize to them. So they're not as... So it's not a talk therapy. It's literally like a physical therapy to the brain. Yep. And she just sits there and shocks his brain a little bit. They do have their sessions. I thought it was called EMS, could it be? No. There's EMDR. No, not EMDR. That's trauma therapy. But it's like that they put these little stickers on the brain, on the right side of the brain, I want to say. They give like little energy shock. I think it's something similar. Showed me a picture of the diodes. Like they had the diodes all over his head. And um, they used to do them on his back too. So they used to get a couple on his back, but... And how often does he do this? When he was originally first started, it was about uh, once a week. And now he's bumped back to... 
I think it's like once every other week, once a month, something like that. So it's been great. It's been super helpful. Way major, like major. See a difference? His reactivity to things. Yes. And his responses? Yeah. I never thought that this would work that well. I, Basically, we'll be standing there having a conversation and I'll say something in a way that he doesn't really care for. And normally it would be that he would respond and he would actually say something really snide back. But instead, he just he'll stand there, he'll stop for a minute and he'll be like, you know what? That made me feel this way, but that's over here with me. And so X, Y, Z. And it just, yeah, it basically just makes that reaction time way less. Wow, that's phenomenal. Yeah. When was the last time he was hospitalized? Was that in 2019 and that time, February? That would have been in 2018 when he, that first time he got diagnosed. Okay. Wow. So that's great. Yeah. He's been, I've never seen somebody who, if he puts his mind to something, this man is just, he's all for it. And so that's why I say is anybody who has BPD or anybody who's with someone who has BPD, that's the biggest thing about therapy is they have to want it. You cannot force it as much as you want it for somebody. They have to want it. Because it's so difficult. It's so difficult. And you have to push through those difficult times that you just feel depleted and the person has to want the recovery. They have to want to live. And one of the things that people with borderline, they really battle the desire to live. And they really sometimes just say, just take me, just end this misery today. And not that they want to attempt suicide always, but they just want to end the misery and the confusion and the extremes inside them that they don't understand and they can't control. And it it could be as much as they're with somebody that loves them, it could still be very lonely. Incredibly. Yeah. Because it's still something that I don't fully understand. And I never will. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend to. The one thing though, is I can't empathize. I can at least feel for him. I can feel that there's confusion and I can understand all the times that he's been hurting so bad and he can't even put a name to what emotion is going on. I can understand that. And it's just something like the only thing I can do is, is be there. Wow. It's amazing. How old are you now? If I may ask. Yeah. I just turned 31 last month. Oh, you're so young. (laughs) But so wise. I've heard this a lot in my life. (laughs) Wow. So when you were 25, younger. Yeah. You started like being a real expert adult therapist in his life. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And this is also, like I said, he's got a 140 IQ. So this man is like incredibly. He's brilliant. Yeah. He's just incredibly smart and just incredibly passionate. And so he's a nice, fun bundle of joy. What does your family and friends say about it? Does anybody say, oh, Brina, why are you doing this to yourself? Is there any pushback? Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, 
boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about, forgiveness. Self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others. Essential for healing. If you want to work one-on-one with me in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom-made program for you, one-on-one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. What does your family and friends say about it? Does anybody say, oh, Brina, why are you doing this to yourself? Is there any pushback? Yeah, I will say that my sister and brother-in-law don't really care for him too much. They have their own opinions. However, it's like he'll show up and they're cordial. My mom, she doesn't seem to have anything with him. She just says, do what's best for me. And she's really supportive of me. And then my dad, on the other hand, just has no opinion at all. So everybody around me, though, they seem to like him. They, they take to him. My aunt, actually, when I told her that Paul has borderline, she informed me that my uncle, so her husband also has borderline. So I have another borderline in my family that I had no idea. Does she share her her journey with you and some tips and tricks or you don't want any from her? No, it was something that I would have gladly taken them, but it was more just that I don't think she knew what she was dealing with because it was one of those that like a therapist had told them once that's what he had. And so she was the ones that just dealt with it. So instead of actually putting together- Rolled with the punches. Exactly, yeah. So instead of putting together a plan of, hey, here's my boundaries, here's your boundaries, here's what we're gonna do, here's almost like a safety word. Things are getting too out of hand, what's one word we can use? She just dealt with it. And her experience was that of what most people have, which is they just put up with a big bully and they don't know why they're putting up with this big bully, but it's, you don't have to live like that. (laughs) Neither one of you do. It's sad, it's sad. This is like one of my wrapping up questions. It's a heavy loaded question and you don't have to answer it, but I'm just curious. So I remember like a year and a half ago, I was listening to someone in a relationship that left the relationship with borderline. And she was saying that she was sticking through the relationship because she was afraid that her loved one at the time, which she didn't love anymore, or maybe she loved parts of them, but she was trying to love herself because she was struggling through the relationship and finding that she was constantly being the the one to blame for everything. And she was exhausted. So she's like, I have two options. Either I can leave and then they'll either threaten, attempt suicide, and maybe even kill themselves because I left. Do I want to live with that, with that big regret or guilt or fear? Or do I want to choose myself? And I remember that they were so confused and a therapist, it was with a therapist on the scene and they were saying that it's one of the biggest things that the person that lives and loves that they're not like, it's a very deep, like a question that it's scary to even address. What if I decide that this is too tiring? Yes, I love Paul to death. He is amazing. He did a lot to me, but yet I'm exhausted. I'm just exhausted. I just want out. But it might trigger a big reaction and might be a fatal reaction. How do you live with that? So I had a coach one time that gave me some of the best advice for around this. And she was saying, because she had a son who was into drugs and alcohol and suicidal himself. And so she was sharing with me that every single day she lives with the fear of having to walk home and potentially see something she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to have to deal with. And she said, ultimately she could either sit there and live the rest of her life with that fear or that guilt. If he does decide to do go through with it, 
Or she could sit here and say, he's going to do what he's going to do. And if he chooses, that's his choice. It wasn't me. And so that's where I've had to live my life is either I could live my life terrified that Paul is going to do something and it's because of me. Or I could sit here and say, he made a choice. I had cause in it, but ultimately he made the choice. I I don't know if you cause it, you triggered it. I don't like the cause because that's taking the blame and it's not really, it's not your fault. It's not blame. Yeah. It's that's kind of what I'm getting at here is like, it's like, I could have triggered it. I may have triggered that, but I wasn't the one I'm not at fault. I wasn't the one that ultimately made that decision. So that's where I had to it's heartbreaking because like it's sometimes when you have a kid that it's I don't have children myself, but I've seen my brother go through some things and it's at some points you just want to step in and you want to do it for them. But in order for them to learn and to be able to become a functioning member of society, it's something that you have to just sit back and watch. And it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard. Another thing that I want to add to that, this therapist was saying that a lot of times humans like you that are so kind and soft and giving are the ones that are attracted to the nurturing and the fixing and trying to make them feel good. So that becomes their identity. And if they trigger something that's the opposite of that, then they lose their identity. And that's their biggest fear of being like the Messiah, the the one that's going to fix them, the one's going to make them feel better. So it's like a double-edged sword. Like which one are we going to abandon? <laughs> like ourself or our identity that makes us feel good because this is what how we're making them feel good. And it's it's very fascinating. It's really fascinating. But at the end of the day, we really Again, I'm saying we, but I wish I was walking your shoes and your greatness. But as caretakers, we have to really choose ourselves no matter what the outcome. And I think that's the biggest struggle, biggest, biggest fine line. And I did have a mother on our podcast that her son did die by suicide. And she said, I... He's been talking about suicide since he was six. He did it when he was, I think, either 18 or 21, something like that. And she said, every day, am I going to wake up and he's going to be in his bed or am I going to see suicide. What am I going to see every day? And she said at a certain time I had to say, and she said, we even discussed how he's going to do it. What kind of conversation is that with a child? Like, how is he going to do it that she can continue her life? But she said, I had to nurture myself and I had to do the best I can for what I had as a mother for him. But I could not say that it's my fault or my place to take the guilt with me. She said, would I have want to change the way he feels and to make him want to live longer? Absolutely. But I can't, I just can't. And that's when she said, I need to live my life. I need to do the best I can. And I thought that was like the most courageous woman walking this planet. Yeah. Insanely hard to split and have that identity. And I'm not even saying split as in you do, we're living in separate homes. No, it's just even to have that time for yourself. And people may look at Paul and I's relationship and they may see that they may see me in the role of a caretaker or a therapist. And ultimately though, like I don't see myself as that because it's just, I've chosen to be my own person while also and support Paul. So it's recently, that's something I even discovered recently was just getting back into my interests, getting back into photography and journalism and all this stuff that I love to do. And I've just been having a blast doing it. I've been, I spent the last, I think, oh yes. And it's been so much fun. It's been such a blessing. It's been so much fun. Nurturing yourself. And that's important. Rena, you're such a gift to this universe. I can't even express to the world how I'm in awe of your courage. And you're so young to be able to do these things that therapists for years are trying to analyze and can't figure it out. And you figured it out and you were willing to, without becoming the doormat with owning yourself and thriving yourself. And at the same time, being nurturing and being nurtured. 
It's beautiful. Do you want to start anything in order to be that role model in the world? Do you have a big vision now that you are like that you could say, I've done a lot. No, you didn't marry him. You're not engaged, but it doesn't matter. Just the fact that you're together for so long is huge, right? Yeah. Do you have a dream of something? Oh man, I have a lot of like individual dreams. As far as my dream for for my family, regardless of whether it is with or without Paul, would be to have this understanding of different people's sufferings. Again, we're all suffering with something. It's just what are we choosing? And so in this case, it's I will always and forever going forward be an advocate for borderline personality disorder because just because of the the people that I've gotten to know and the people who I've gotten to love because of it. As far as big grand dreams, yeah, I'm working with nonprofits at the moment. And so there's a couple that I'm connected with. Nothing to do with the mental health sector yet. So hopefully I can maybe get into that and then just really get the message out there. That's what I want to do is just really spread the message. And especially for people who just don't feel that they have the space to talk about it. I know there's a big thing with men, especially where they're not comfortable talking about their feelings. And I would really love to see men share more. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable and real, authentic, giving, kind, all of the words, really. I want to meet you in person one day. I want to start something with you. I want to start some kind of maybe a, a support group. I don't know, something. That would be great. Like we'll get a few people together and brainstorm because I think there's so much work that needs to be done and so little attention has been given to borderline as if the world gave up on them. Oh, they're borderline. Oh, let's not invest time or energy or thought. But with Marsha Linehan and her gift of DBT, she's saving lives. She's literally saving lives. So I think the hope is starting and we have to continue it and we have to bring it up and we have to ignite a little bit more because it gets exhausting. As, and maybe we can create big change a little bit at a time. I look forward to it. Is there anything you want to share before we say goodbye? Really just that it doesn't matter what you're struggling with, whether it be BPD, whether it be any other mental health, depression, anxiety, find your support system. Find, even if it's a a notebook that you write in, if that's your support system, go find it and go find what makes you happy. Beautiful. May God create more Brina's in this world that can be the sunshine and the breath of fresh air that we need. Thank you very much for your wisdom. Thank you. Bye for next time. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. In Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.